Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. Have you ever heard the expression, keep your friends close to you and your enemies closer to you? Well, I don't agree with that, but I do think that if I am devoted to loyalty to Jesus, giving some thought to how his enemy Satan tries to undermine our allegiance to Jesus makes sense. This episode identifies from Scripture some of the tactics that Satan uses to get us to betray our Lord. Thanks for joining us today for Season 3, Episode number 18 of Mission Focused Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. Today we conclude our four-part April series, Worthy of Our Allegiance, We saw numerous ways that Jesus summoned allegiance from the heart of Peter and took a practical look at what our commander-in-chief said was to be our highest priority, furthering the rule of his kingdom of righteousness in our own heart attitudes and over the earth that he claims as his own. We noted that despite the present feelings that we are losing at the moment, History shows that the resurrection not only happened, but that Christ's kingdom has grown from a mustard seed to cover the earth, as Jesus said it would. Today, we examine the way our Lord's enemy seeks to undermine our allegiance to him. We first identify four names of the evil one that give clues about his strategy, then examine Satan's strategy against Eve and Job and then what his temptation of Jesus can teach us. So first, Satan's identity gives us some clues about his strategy. He is the father of lies. We read in John 8, He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The nature of sin is to darken our understanding, causing us to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In contrast, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The more biblical truth we know, the better equipped we are to go into spiritual battle and resist the lies of Satan that he sends into our minds. Next, Satan is our adversary. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, from 1 Peter 5.8. The name Satan is the Greek form of the Aramaic word for adversary. An adversary is an opponent who is hostile to you. Our calling is to seek the rule of Jesus' kingdom of righteousness over our heart loyalties, our heart attitudes, and every sphere of our lives. We are resisted every step of the way by the prince of the rulers of darkness. We know from Scripture that Satan has already lost the spiritual war, but every time he gets a Christian to give up on God and pursuing righteousness, Satan wins a spiritual battle. Satan is thirdly called the accuser. The Greek word for devil, diabolos, means accuser, slanderer. And Revelation 12.10 describes the defeat of Satan 
as the slanderer. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. God created the human conscience as a dashboard for our hearts with warning lights that come on when we're about to sin or have sinned. The red lights flashing for past sins are a path to discovering the gospel, Christ's forgiveness for our sin. When we repent and come to faith in Christ, the old flashing lights are destroyed. That is called grace, feeling and being fully forgiven. Then our conscience can work correctly, warning us of future danger when we are about to sin. But one of Satan's strategies is to accuse us night and day, even though the blood of Christ the Lamb has covered us. He knows that flashing lights of false guilt constantly on will cause us to hate the dashboard lights and steal our love for the creator of the dashboard. We need to be sure that grace has traveled from our heads to our hearts, causing us to know we are fully forgiven. If we don't, the moral law, instead of being a wonderful guide to life, becomes either a tyranny of legalism or a forgotten guide that is neglected by what's called antinomianism. Satan is also called the destroyer. Revelation 9.11, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, In Greek, he is called Apollyon. This name then means destroyer. The same concept is conveyed when Satan is called a wolf or a lion. David Jeremiah, in his book, The Spiritual Warfare Answer Book, describes the intention of Satan to destroy. He writes, Satan is a great destroyer. He wants to destroy your life through adversity, and by blocking the work God wants to see manifested in your life. Satan does that by discouraging you, by dissipating your time and energy, and by making a frontal assault on your weak areas that lead you to sin. Satan wants to disrupt your walk with God, ruin your testimony, and destroy your life. Let's look at Satan's strategy in tempting Eve and then later tempting Job, which in both cases was causing them to doubt God's goodness. When we read God's history of mankind, the Bible, we've barely gotten through the creation account in the first two chapters when we encounter Satan planting the one idea into Eve's heart that you could say is responsible for more human destruction than any other idea. The lie that God's goodness can't be trusted. When this wrong idea captured Eve's heart, she rebelled. Adam rebelled with her, and humans have been rebelling against God and his law ever since. Satan's chief strategy to inspire rebellion in Eve's heart was to make her doubt God's goodness. Let's take a moment to study again this tactic of Satan that he used on Eve. Genesis 3, verses 2 through 5. 
The serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice that Satan actually begins the temptation by planting a complete fabrication into Eve's mind. The possibility that this unfair God might have put all the delicious fruit trees in the garden just to make them miserable by not permitting them to eat any of them. His words again, did God really say you can't eat from any tree? Even though God never said that, as he pointed out, Satan still planted the idea that God was the kind of being who could have done something so completely unfair. And then notice that Satan further undermined Eve's confidence in God's goodness by taking her focus off of all the wonderful fruit God had given them to enjoy throughout the entire garden and directing her focus on one apparently unfair restriction. Every single other tree in the garden with its lush fruit for Adam and Eve to enjoy proved God's goodness, his desire to bless them with good gifts. Later, Jesus would remind us of this wonderful, benevolent nature of God. In Matthew 7, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And then notice Satan's attack on God's goodness. Continuing, he says flat out, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan insinuates, number one, that God's motive is selfishness. He's keeping something from her and Adam all to himself, that is, the knowledge of good and evil. And secondly, God's moral law is fundamentally a restriction on our happiness. Both undermine her confidence in the goodness of God. The truth, of course, is that his law is given to us out of his goodness to guide us into blessing. King David said, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Satan's tactics to destroy the faith of Job are different. He has the power to inflict enormous physical, emotional, and spiritual pain on Job, but his strategy seems to be the same, to try to get him to curse God instead of trusting him. Job learns some humility, but Satan fails. In the midst of unfathomable pain, Job says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And God's goodness, hidden for a season of affliction, bursts forth again in the closing chapter of Job with the words, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Inscribed on the shield of faith that we need to raise against Satan's attack on God's goodness are the words, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. In the great eighth chapter of Romans, 
Paul argues that the Holy Spirit is for us, verse 26, the Spirit himself intercedes for us, that God the Father is for us, in verse 28, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, and that Christ is for us, verse 34, Christ Jesus, who indeed is interceding for us. In the midst of these claims, Paul asks rhetorically, if God is for us, who can be against us? Those are truths we need to put deep down into our hearts to resist the temptation to doubt God's goodness. Let's take a look at Satan's temptation of Jesus from Matthew 4. First verses 3 through 4, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I believe this is the temptation to use your power, abilities, or status selfishly to satisfy your physical appetites. I cannot think of any instance in which Jesus used his miracle-working power selfishly. The return of Jesus' appetite after fasting meant that he would soon die if he did not eat. Israel wandered 40 years in the wilderness, during which time they had to trust God every day for their bread, the manna that God supernaturally provided. Jesus had fasted 40 days. Somehow, Jesus knew that he would not be obeying, quote, the words that come from the mouth of God if he used his power selfishly. Stated positively, I believe Jesus is teaching us always trust your physical appetites to God. Do not meet them in a wrong way, but wait upon him to meet them. This has application, I think, to our masculine hungers. For sex, for example, when we have no wife, or she is unavailable, or not interested, men can rationalize looking at porn for sexual release instead of choosing the harder path to communicate better with his wife and wait upon God to satisfy that yearning. The same principle can apply to our need for physical rest. Most men I know return from work exhausted, and many wives today do as well. Better to trust God with our need for rest and focus on serving our wife and family than to let selfishness creep in. Again, this doesn't mean being a martyr who's unwilling to talk frankly with our spouse about our mutual needs. That may be God's solution for our need of relaxation or sex. The second temptation, verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I believe this is the temptation to expect God to make his path for you easy. It would have been so much easier for Jesus to gain a following by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple, and God had promised that the angelic host would protect him. 
The reason I believe this is the temptation is the background surrounding the Deuteronomy 6.16 text, which Jesus quoted, and that warns Israel not to put God to the test. The Deuteronomy 6.16 text included the words, as you tested God at Massa. The incident was recorded in Exodus 17.1 through 7, where we read, The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And then a few verses later, a summary, they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Saying the Lord is not among us because he has not made our way easy seems to be what is in view in putting God to the test. Once again, this seems so realistic to me. The way for the Messiah to be crowned was the path of suffering. Philippians 2, 8 and 9 tells us he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. On my better days, I realized two things about complaining. First, it is disloyalty to God, because it is God who has ordained the circumstances of my life that I can't control. Second, it is based on a lie that if God loved me, he would make my life easy. So testing God seems to be telling God what to do on my timetable. For Israel, produce water now. For Jesus, help me land safely as I jump off the pinnacle of the temple and win a following from the crowd. The third temptation is in Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I believe this is the temptation to let the greatness of the objective we're trying to reach cause us to make one small moral compromise. All Jesus would need to do is genuflex once, just hit the knee once, and think of all the good Jesus could do for the world if he ruled it instead of Satan. Achieving the spiritual prosperity we long for, the spiritual land of milk and honey, doesn't come from being a pragmatist. In fact, we need to realize that prosperity doesn't come from aiming for it. Rather, it is the product of serving the Lord our God and worshiping Him only. Achieving our great goals for God means less to Him than obedience. To defeat this temptation, Jesus quoted a passage from Deuteronomy 6 also. This is preceded by the warning not to let the prosperity that God brings his people lull them into loving the prosperity instead of God. We read in verse 10 of chapter 6 through 14, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, 
and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. That's what Jesus quoted. It continues, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. Men are created to work, to be productive. And God wants to bless that work with prosperity because fathers give good gifts to their children. But we must keep first things first, setting and keeping our affections on him and never on the blessings themselves. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. To summarize this episode, sometimes we need to be reminded that Jesus' enemy seeks to undermine our allegiance to Jesus. We saw four names for Satan that identify to some degree his strategy for doing this, Since he is the father of lies, we need to expect false ways of thinking to flood our minds, to be overcome by the truth of God. As our adversary, he will never stop opposing our efforts to promote the reign of Christ's kingdom of righteousness. As our accuser, Satan apparently can't stand the fact that followers of Christ are declared righteous. He must hate us for that. And then lastly, he is a destroyer who wants to undermine our efforts to honor Christ by discouraging us, by dissipating our time and energy, and by making frontal assaults on our weaknesses, which, by the way, is why we need a brother helping us fight our spiritual battles. Satan's chief avenue of attack upon Eve and Job seemed to be undermining their confidence in God's goodness, a lie refuted by Paul who reminds us that God is for us. Satan seemed to tempt Jesus to use his power selfishly to satisfy his physical needs instead of trusting those needs to God to meet on his timetable. Satan seemed to tempt Jesus into taking an easy way to win a following which would have put God to the test instead of the path of suffering, expecting God to make our path easy and complaining when he does not is a form of putting God to our test, and it is wrong. Finally, Satan offered Jesus the very objective of his entire life, the spread of his kingdom over earth. But it required one small, or not so small, compromise. Great spiritual goals and worthy projects please God, but never disobeying God's law to achieve them. Indeed, such prosperity, when achieved, can take our eyes off the ball, which is keeping God first in our affections. For further prayerful thought, number one, which of Satan's names seems to you to most reveal his tactics and purpose? See your show notes for additional questions. This week's past series highlight is entitled Winning Spiritual Battles Because We Use Our Spiritual Weapons Continued. It starts Season 2, Episode 16, 22121 and goes through Season 2, Episode 21, 32821. Protecting ourselves from Satan's fiery darts, how the helmet of salvation protects us in spiritual battle, using the sword of the Spirit to stay on the path of life, 
why prayer releases spiritual power, studying how lust defeated David, serving King Jesus is awesome. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you might want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. This link is also in your show notes. Thanks for listening today. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to let other Christian men know about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission from Christ by equipping them and inspiring them each week while they commute or work out. <music>